Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyer Labs. Today we are lucky enough to have Jim Fish with us. And Jim is the Chief Innovation Officer at Bosch North America. Uh, he received his undergrad degree at Michigan Technological University and his MBA at University of Michigan. And he also has a number of patents to his name and was named a Bosch Inventor of the Year in 2014. So Bosch is large. In 2015, Bosch North America had revenues around $14 billion. And as many of you know, Bosch sells and manufactures a variety of products from power tools to gasoline systems to battery systems. Um, so they're in the middle of the connected car space and the IoT space. And uh, somehow Jim has to figure out how to innovate through all this. And so I asked him on the show because I'm curious how he thinks about innovation and how he executes on it. So, uh, Jim, thanks for uh, joining us today. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me. I'm always happy to talk about it. Always happy to uh, help uh, increase the number of dents in the universe that we can all make. <laughs> um, right now, when you talk about that uh, that broad, very broad question, um, I I tend to think of it as an adaptable process. So Bosch has uh, uh, an R&D workforce. For example, Bosch uh, spends $300 million a year on corporate research and development. And then it's spending uh, just over 10% of its global revenues, which is 70 billion euros uh, a year on the uh, product engineering research and development. But the central piece is at 300 million. So in some environments, like in our Palo Alto, uh, you might have uh, one culture uh, that can uh, allow innovation to flourish. And in another, there may be quite a different path for it, quite, quite different objectives. Um, as you can imagine, power tools um, may have a different culture than uh, a, a business that would be concerned with industrial drives. That's primarily a business-to-business mechanical type business. Uh, we also have a business as part of our group that is called Software Innovations, and that is a, a service center to provide uh, cutting-edge software capabilities to the different business units that may not have uh, grown that capability yet themselves. So I think it uh, depends on where you are. Uh, in the company as to how you innovate, but um, I think the most important thing is to is to evaluate uh, the objectives of your business and then really carefully uh, evaluate the leadership and their their own openness to the topics. And, and by openness, I don't mean they say they want innovation because I, I I've never found a leader that says no, we don't want it. Um, but it's uh, you know it's it's their policy and the leadership behavior about, uh, around that. So you know, are they do they uh, tend to be uh, supportive of of explore, if you will, type businesses? That is the creation of new business platforms. Are they more of an operations focus where it's you know, we have to tighten down our SGNA? So the innovation that would be possible in different environments is is quite different depending on on where that business is is uh, finds itself. And how, I mean, you know, Bosch has so many different areas and uh, obviously a huge amount of research. How, how do you figure out where to spend your time and focus and uh, across all that? Well, you know, I think um, innovation has a number of, uh, of different things. There's, there's the cultural piece, there's the, there's the creative piece, but you know, I kind of uh, do it around um, just a, a few uh, pillars that I kind of call uh, 
like a, a manifesto, if you will. So there is uh, the manifesto says these are the areas in, in which you know I'll spend uh, my time, and it is uh, essentially embrace new technologies. So the activities that do that, and to put myself in front of those new technologies. Uh, and that's spending time in Silicon Valley, spending time in the hotbeds of, you know, say Salt Lake City or Berlin, um, or even Shanghai, where where some business model stuff is is really exciting and happening. And then uh, the next one, it, it goes to educate and inform. So bring that knowledge into the organizations, um, help them understand. So it's it's what's called share and move on. So share what you've learned, and then move on and continue to spread and pollinate that. Um, and look for the application of those technologies. The next one is change processes and environment. So uh, process can be the bane of, of innovative activity because in one aspect, uh, the focus of process is to drive variation out of an organization. And our whole focus of creating uh, more uh, innovative content into a business is to drive variance into an organization. Although there are many, many ways to innovate, the only clear common denominator of innovation is diversity of thought. So that change process and environment has to do with, uh, you know, kind of you produce the output uh, that's very much a manifestation of the place in which you work. And then uh, next is encourage experimentation. Uh, try to figure out what too small the matter means so that you can get it too big to fail. So you, you want to always figure out uh, at what level of activity kind of flies beneath the radar so that it can be, hey, that's really too small the matter. Let them do it. Something might, interesting might come out. For your business, that might be $5,000. It might be $50,000. It might be $500,000. depends on your scale. Um, but figure that out and then encourage that type of activity. Um, encourage people to work off off the side of their desk. Encourage people to do things on their own for the learning opportunity, for the career opportunity uh, in the future that that may uh, represent. And defend those people, and and frankly celebrate those that uh, don't work out. So uh, remove that that Stigma. that barrier to yeah. trying things by removing the fear of that failure, and, and encourage uh, th- that failure to be celebrated. And then the last one, of course, focus on growth. So it's not, it is business at the end of the day. And without that uh, solid profitable revenue stream, uh, there would be no uh, innovative activity. So really focus on the growth runways of the business. So those five. Hmm. Well, that's well put. And uh, I think we could have a podcast and just each one of those, um, but we won't. And, uh, but, you know, I'm curious, do you have an example of, a technology or product that was, you know, was in one of the labs and, and then how that came all the way out through actually being commercialized and put into the, to the market. And, and I'm kind of curious about your role. Like, do you, do you just kind of encourage it or can you shoot down projects and how do you play? Uh, you know, that's, that's a great question. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, we have divisions and business units and, and they manage um, their expenses. And then there is a, a, a regional function, right? So uh, what's called RBNA, Robert Bosch, North America. So that is kind of like the country manager. So if there's multiple divisions that are going to approach uh, a common customer, so if you say we have a division that does chassis control, we have a division that does automotive electronics, if there's a giant bid on a common customer, you would have you know a, a, a regional-based uh, team, and that's kind of you know this central 
uh, function for the region when you have a, a large company. Um, and so uh, am I directing it? You know, we're encouraging things. Um, an example of something that, that came from the labs and that you'd probably be pretty familiar with is, is Bosch's world-leading position in, in MEMS or microelectromechanical sensors. Uh, these are devices that help electronic devices figure out which way is up. They try to, they are able to figure out that you've been climbing stairs. They're able to figure out that you've been walking. They've been air. They're able to figure out which way is magnetic north. They're able to figure out, uh, temperature, humidity, and they're all very, very small. Um, three millimeters square would be a really, really big one. So these very, very tiny, ultra thin devices get put into electronics that you probably have within two feet of your right hand right now. And um, Bosch is shipping in excess of two billion of these devices a year currently into the consumer electronics market. And and didn't those, uh, I mean, I've read about some of those uh, um, sensors and that they've come down in price quite a bit. I mean, how long has Bosch been selling those for? And do you know what how the pricing has? Come well, it, the, the business itself has been commercial for uh, right around a decade, okay. so it's not you know a long term legacy business, and you know it's truly a global approach. And and it's uh, you know Bosch also has a, a unique program in that the, the CEO uh, is active in kind of in participating in the scientific areas in which Bosch would investigate. So our, our CEO, his name is Volkmar Denar. He's a PhD in science, uh, in physics, I believe. And he is, uh, very active in, in suggesting and even funding exploration activities in some of these areas. So, uh, you know, t- uh, being all in in the world of IoT, you know, we have a large portfolio of both commercial stuff that's like the MEMS devices and a huge portfolio of research work at which uh, we're deeply involved with the leading research institutes of the world. In North America here, uh, we have our Palo Alto facility that's joined at the hip with Stanford University. In fact, we even use uh, their, their chip foundry for development work on MEMS. Uh, we have a, a, a team in Pittsburgh that's uh, closely aligned with Carnegie Mellon and all of the uh, leading topics that they have from robotics to image processing to machine learning. We also have a small team that's aligned with MIT up in Boston. So we deeply align with leading institutes around the world. Um, and then, uh, you know, we have uh, this team in North America that's kind of positioned as the, the leading edge uh, thinking because, uh, you know, obviously Palo Alto, a lot of really great ideas continue to just gush forth out of that geography. And it's uh, critical that we have presence and position there and continue to do research there. And and so how do you know when, when you go out to Palo Alto or you get reports about what's going on? There, like how, how do you know to continue funding like a certain technology? Like how do you know it has market appeal and it has the value? That's a great question. Um, I call that, now there's been a book called The Innovation Dilemma, and that is uh, that has to do with companies that are too focused on their current customers, and when they see an innovation, they say, well, our customers aren't interested in that, or they'd be buying it already. <laughs> um, the, it's what I call the inventor's dilemma. Um, I'm actually uh, authoring a book right now. Uh, that's going by the working title called uh, Spark Ignition, and this is uh, probably chapter six or seven. And it's kind of where I am right now, and it says this inventor's dilemma is obviously failing fast is what everybody encourages you to do, 
uh, when you're innovating because it's known that you know, if you get get something that begins to be funded, roughly 30% of the time, this will have lasting impact in your business. So you have to figure out, you can't, you don't know what those 30% are unless you begin to try some of them. So how do you know when to fail fast versus everybody knows the value of persistence and in bringing innovation right, to the market. Right. So that inventor's dilemma, as I call it, and I explore the topic of, of fail fast versus persist. How do you, how do you know that? And there's, there's a, there's an informal framework that I use to suggest this. And, um, it has to do with uh, how tightly aligned is it with your existing business? Um, what is the market development and anticipation? And, you know, you do kind of like a, 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 a variant of the Porter Five Forces analysis, but um, there, this is still art. Um, and I can't say that this, you follow this framework and these rules and these metrics and you'll make better decisions, right? It's, it still ends up being very much an art. Uh, and I, I would say that the, the companies that are best at this are those that are mature in continuing to bring innovation about themselves. So, uh, you know, it's always uh, uh, an arm wrestling match and, and there's always uh, internal dissent and, and there is opinion and emotion that goes into these and, and inventors you know, I have many patents myself, as you mentioned, they view these as, they're, they're, I'm not kidding, they're children. And when your children are put to the ax, it's devastating because you become very much wed to these. So it's, you know, have, you have to have the ability to kind of place that aside, but that is a real emotion and, and it's an area of the business, one of the many areas of business that emotion does in fact come into play. Mm, interesting. I never yeah, heard of it. Yeah. A great example, Google recently announced that they're stopping bringing to market this uh, this user configurable smartphone. So you would uh, it would be uh, like a like a subsystem kind of based smartphone and the the product manager for that publicly stated it's unfortunate that we didn't have the courage to bring this across uh-huh. the finish line. So even in a very uh, innovation mature company like Google, um, they continue to uh, struggle with these very issues. Yeah, I, I've never thought about or heard about kind of the emotional side. Well, it makes sense, and that's why you know your role. You've mentioned that you help encourage, you know, because that that is a big part of it. You don't want those scientists to leave, and because they're probably talented. And so that's interesting. Yeah, it's a big part of it. Um, so. Do you have an example? You know, we were, you were talking about uh, how to understand which ideas might be a good ones to continue. Like an, an example of a project that uh, that you can share. Maybe you can't share any that that you um, Bosch thought was very promising, and you had to shut down because it's like oh, and and, and in hindsight, you know, were there, were there indicators, or was it more just you had to keep going until you? Those yeah, um, there is an effort uh, that was uh, shut down in one of the business units and it was um, it was for IT that I had and we were developing a, a reality around this IT um, and I would say that when business leadership shifted they had a di- different disposition towards innovative topics they had a different disposition towards um, the time frame that they viewed the business so um, I think that's when innovation topics underway are at greatest risk is when you do have a shift in leadership. Um, you know, I, I always say that there's businesses that are in four possible stages and they have different environments and they, they require different leadership styles. 
Um, the first one is the business that would be um, not profitable or negative profit. And the situation you're in there is restructure, divest, shut down, you know, Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Uh, clearly no time for innovative topics. Uh, special leadership is really needed to do these things. It's a very tough situation for everybody. Um, you're likely to have less people working there in 60 days than you do today kind of thing. It's very fast-paced, but it's all total about fixing the size of the business if and, and if it's sustainable at all. The next one is a, a low-profit business that maybe has been disrupted. Uh, maybe they became too reliant on their on their uh, legacy core, maybe complacency, maybe uh, some leadership missteps, but it's it's been a more sudden recent decline. Uh, and to avoid becoming uh, a, a loss business or a negative business, they're desperate. Um, they're they're willing to try new things. They're willing to be bold. They're willing to disrupt themselves because they feel themselves already being disrupted. This is a, an environment that that warmly welcomes innovation, and, and it's a great place to be. It's a high stress place to be, but a great place to be because they're desperate. Um, the third one is that business that's struggling on profitability, but it's been kind of a slow decline. And this is the business that is more, I call the operational excellence situation by, you know, tightening the screws and refining and continuous improvement. Um, they seek to return to their, their past glories, if you will, seek to return their status, their profitability. Typically not open to innovation because the people that are managing this process are very short-term operation focused people. And then the last class of the business is one that's that's a healthy, profitable business, usually 10% operating profit or greater. And they are, uh, you can split that into two classes, one that maybe it's in a large corporate holding structure and they view it as a cash cow, at which point innovation becomes difficult, or they view it as a springboard to growth, a high profit business that can um, grow. They have a very valuable core competence and they're looking to further create further value streams with that core competence. That's also a very exciting place to be. You see Google doing this today, very high profit core. They seek to create additional value streams um, with the, with the profit that that core throws off. Um, so that's, that's, you know, kind of where is the business and, and what is the risk of something getting shut down, especially if there's a leadership change. It's kind of where, what type of business are you in? Yeah, that makes sense. That's it. That's a good answer. Uh, okay. And before we get too far, I, I want to ask a, more a couple personal, more on the personal side, not too personal, don't worry. But, um, you know, I, I was curious, you know, how, how did you become uh, chief innovation officer? You know, what was your path and what made sure. you kind of a sure. candidate? You know, I've always been a very bold individual. I worked at, even when I worked at Ford, you know, I left Ford and I thought at the time I left Ford, it was because it wasn't enough action oriented, but I've since learned that it was more around the culture of a large process focused organization. Um, because I, I, I abhorred process and I saw a big picture. I wanted to make bold strategic moves, uh, take big chunks of the market rather than incremental chunks. Um, and in an incremental organization that Ford was in the, in the late nineties, um, that really, you know, my pop, my personality was more like, you know, was really felt trapped in a cage. Here's your book. Here's a 173 page test plan. Now go execute it over the next two years. And this is your life. And I, and then, some people are great at that, and, and um, others are not. If you look at my Myers-Briggs type, I am an ENTJ, but my J is 
fairly weak and my N is very, very strong. And that actually pulls me into the creative dimension where, you know, it's people are, are wired to be quality guys. People are wired to be creative people. People are all wired to be Catholic priests and people are wired to be Wall Street bankers. And in each of those cases, you know, they're, they're diametric opposite on the personality um, realm, if you look at Myers-Briggs or other similar models, I mean, the, the opposite of, of a priest where he, he views um, uh, his legacy in society and betterment of the whole and the community, whereas the Wall Street banker doesn't care about any of that. He wants a quarterly profit and nothing but. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the exact opposite of, say, the highly creative biotech um, founder is that manufacturing process engineer at a large stamping company, for example, right? So um, I'm kind of in the creative dimension and it's kind of something I've always done. And I, I got involved in working with software and became fascinated with the things that software could do, especially for um, automotive mechanics and bringing them technology that helps them do their job faster. And I really got attached to the, the vision of you know, and I uh, I also worked in the marketing group, and I felt like you know what we did allowed, say, a mechanic to go home early, allowed to go home and watch his son's baseball game and have dinner with his family because we helped him get done faster, mm-hmm. and we can enable this through technology. and And I I became just absolutely obsessed with these technicians and, and improving their lot in life by our efforts. And we had this call, this meeting, and we filed tons of IP around it. And it was you know, a lot of very disruptive stuff in the realm of software that we did. And, uh, you know, then it, it became, hey, this guy really thinks about things differently, takes a different approach and, and lives three years in the future. Um, and so that made me a really good fit to you know, this is this is the kind of guy that although he struggles to come to the office every day and deal with us and when we make him fill spreadsheets out, <laughs> um, he's something we need more of. So, well, I mean, the Bosch's, to Bosch's credit, they recognize they do need that diversity of thought. They realize that not everybody can enjoys uh, filling out their spreadsheets and, and uh, taking their online training and, you know, all this other large company stuff that's so distasteful to people that aren't big fans of process. Um, and, and they, they recognize the need to, to spread a little of that diverse thinking in, in terms of real solutions for the customers. Well, and that, uh, that vision is just a, especially in today's world, it's just a key part. And, uh, you know, I, I've talked to different venture capitalists and like, you know, a, a good founder is one that can, you know, it's good operations and can see the market, like what's going on now, amazing one that can see what's going on in seven years or five years or three years. And uh-huh. so, yeah, to be able to do that is uh, not an easy skill. And uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, you, you read the, uh, the Steve Jobs um, biography and uh, you know, I'd heard all these stories about how difficult he could be to work with. And, you know, he would fire people to drop a hat. He would yell and scream. He was very obstinate about things. And if you read his book and you're from the creative dimension, the thing I took out of it was he he felt he had to act like that because he knew he was right. Mm. And to spend time convincing you was a loss of competitive advantage. Time is a competitive weapon. He viewed time as a competitive weapon. And he was giving time up, convincing you that he was right. So he became very impatient with that process. If you didn't get him, he would start yelling. Mm. Um, so that was kind of my take on yeah, his behavior, yeah. um, that makes sense. from, from that perspective. And 
and I'm curious how you deal with um, kind of the uncertainty. Like you mentioned, anyway, at Ford, you can go out the, you, and give a 173-page manual to engineers, say, you know, execute this testing plan over the next two years. Like if they do that, they get, you know, their salary and everyone's happy. Like it's pretty clear, uh, relatively clear kind of their path to success. Whereas you as chief innovation officer, I mean, it doesn't seem nearly as clearly as defined. And so um, have you always it seems like there's a lot more uncertainty. Have you always felt comfortable around that uncertainty a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it goes to the, to the way you're wired. And um, I also, I try to, I know what activities are, are my quote unquote flow. They say, what is your flow? What is something you can do for hours and hours and hours and time just compresses um, to place yourself in that flow in the professional environment? You know, some people, you know, their flow is writing code. They can write code and six hours is gone. Oh my God, I skipped lunch. It's three in the afternoon. I've been writing code. You know, they're likely to be amazing at it. Um, for me, it's, it's, it's learning a new technology or seeing it demonstrated or talking to a researcher because I, I, I become just engrossed with what they're working on and I'm just looking for how can that provide value to somebody? Um, and, and then the, the activities that just grow from that, right? And so I, I, uh, you know, get to uh, Silicon Valley or to our other research labs, meet with small VCs um, and small startup companies and, and see what they're working on and um, just pursue those activities to drive those in. You know, there's, there is no process for, for no, necessarily right. <laughs> how you do this. Interesting. And, and so uh, what did, in uh, 2014, you got awarded the, the Bosch Inventor of the Year. Is that correct? Yeah, and what 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 was that for? What did you invent? That the uh, you know in the of course the way they award a patent um, at Bosch is they score it. So you know is it is it easy to copy? Is it easy to verify that the IP is being infringed on? And these are all scores. What is the potential commercial value? What how big is the audience of this? Um, and in this case, it was uh, a social networking patent. Uh, that had to do with uh, people working on vehicles that are seeing similar things. So let's say you have your car and it uh, the check engine light comes on and, and let's say there's a certain code on it and uh, that's recorded because a computer would see that car and let's say two weeks from now somebody else sees that exact same circumstance. Um, would it not be useful if those two people could actually connect with each other to share um, maybe how much did that cost or where did you go to get it fixed or what was actually wrong with it? Um, was it serious? Can you drive with it? So, you know, that it, chances are that person that happened to two weeks ago was a lot more educated on it um, and they could help somebody else in the future. So it would work with technicians. It could work between consumers. Um, so it's it's uh, in in with automotive technicians, there's almost this creed that they're 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 proud of their craft and their knowledge, and they're willing to help each other in this community. Say there's 800,000 people in the United States that, that repair vehicles for a living, and they're very proud of what they do, and it is a community, and they have a lot of mutual respect for each other, and they'll help each other out, and they don't expect anything else from it. Much like on Yelp, I mean, why do people post restaurant reviews on Yelp? They don't benefit from that. Um, they're helping other people and don't expect anything in return. So that concept being used to help technicians fix vehicles is kind of what that patent is about. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's a good idea. And and then I also saw a video on you talking about the connected car program. 
Um, I'm curious, um, can you share a little bit more about that? Um, I'm not sure what video you saw, uh, but um, well, was that? I don't. Yeah. Well, do you have? It was. Um, I think it was a way to allow the consumers to easily service their car. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, uh, Bosch has uh, several approaches to you know helping people with their they would say the mobility experience. If you want to think about the future yeah, a little yeah. bit, uh, the connected car can be as simple as a DIYer. Um, who's going to repair his vehicle, uh, helping him figure out what's wrong with his car. And it could be as sophisticated as a father whose daughter is at college and he wants to see if she's taking care of her vehicle or not. Um, and the OEMs uh, currently offer very limited solutions for this. So uh, the, the Bosch product here is something that you can buy uh, and plug it into your vehicle and you can tell what your vehicle's doing remotely. It's 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 uh, very closely related to those sh- the solutions that you see insurance companies offer, like oh, yeah. the Progressive Snapshot, for example, that you plug into your car. That is not a Bosch product, but it's very closely related to that. You'll plug it into your car. It can, you're, it can, you can understand what your car is doing. In this case, your insurance company is watching what your car is doing. They've got a little cell phone chip in there. They can remotely see what's going on with your car. So you know, Bosch has has a very similar product. Um, the, the business is centered in Europe, uh, and, and most of the technology is, is, is uh, developed in Europe, um, but it is something that we uh, offer to the marketplace today. Interesting. And, and what type of, if you can share, uh, technologies especially excite you right now? Yeah, I, I think without, I have no hesitation on this <laughs> one. I think um, machine learning I think there's a lot of hyperbole about it and and there's a lot of doubters because machine learning has started and stopped and started and stopped again twice. Um, and most of the limitations were due to processing memory, um, and, and, uh, bandwidth issues. And now that, you know, processing power is unbelievable. In fact, the, the new, uh, the new chip on the iPhone seven, they say is more powerful than the than the Mac chip from three years ago, so that your really? cell phone now has wow. more power. If your Mac is three years old, your new your new iPhone seven it, it has a more powerful processor in it from a single threaded core. So um, this allows machine learning to really accomplish amazing things. And um, the the for businesses considering how can machine learning help me, you should say the hypothesis of machine learning is anything that a human can do without emotion. Uh, can be done by a machine. So there's a lot of stuff that requires emotion. So, you know, difficult. So from taste of food to judging art to creating art to writing things, um, very difficult for a machine to do because this requires emotion. But um, non-emotion-based tasks, decision-making, judging, um, inspection, these type of things, even IT processes, um, reading manuals and being experts. These are these are areas that machine learning can be deployed in, and um, I am emotionally all in on machine learning topics. Emotionally, nice, nice, well put. And, and do you have an example of uh, where Bosch uh, implemented machine learning? Like, uh, machi- I think machine learning is is in its infancy. It's uh, what I consider. You know, Bosch is working on a lot of things that are years from even being appropriate to bring to a business unit. Okay. Um, 
still robotics is still a very expensive thing. And for many business units, I would say it's really not ready to begin to consider. Uh, machine learning is at the point where we're just beginning to explore its uses and and learn more about it. Uh, machine learning also, so if you would consider um, something that could hear a sound, right? And it's sometimes important to identify a sound. So you might think that a training machine to hear things uh, might also be really interesting. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. Okay. And uh, we're almost out of time here, unfortunately. But I, I was also, but we got a couple more minutes. I was also curious, uh, who, who's on your team as part of the nation? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I work uh, half between what's called our automotive aftermarket and then half uh, between our, our, uh, our regional business. And so I work with uh, the diagnostics team. So still interacting with the data bus on the vehicle is still an active part of my, of my role. Um, also the marketing team, uh, especially in North America, and then the product management team. So it's uh, gotcha. we're still struggling with our own maturity to say this is a dedicated position with a dedicated team, to be honest. Um, but that's that's uh, our uh, path of maturity. Interesting. Yeah, you have such an interesting. You have such a well, I think fun job. I'm, I'm sure it's not all fun, but man, you get to, <laughs> you get to see lots of stuff. I bet that yeah. that uh, like you said is down the road a bit. But that's what's so exciting about it. And uh, and one of my last questions was, uh, you know. How many, well, I don't know, this is kind of a tough question to answer, but, you know, I was trying to get a feel for it. You see lots of good ideas in lab. How many of those ideas do you think actually make it to the market? You know, is it 5%? Is it 10%? Um, I mean, do you have any? Well, I mean, there's a difference between ideas and technologies. I mean, there's, yep. there's uh, thousands of ideas and maybe hundreds of technologies, right? So um, I, I would like to say that, Every technology eventually is going to make it. The, the only question is the time frame. I mean, it, it wouldn't be worked on if it, in nanotechnology is, is sort of here, right? Um, other things, um, you know, Bosch isn't working on fuel cells, but I think I always point at fuel cells as a great example. I mean, we actually had fuel cells working on the first Apollo uh, moonshot, right? So fuel cells, but are they commercially viable? No. Um, <laughs> will they ever be? I would say for the last 40 years, people have said four or five years out, you know. So sometimes there is some kind of technical hurdle that just can't be breached. And in the case of fuel cells, it's the, the temperature of the stacks and the, and the expense that it, that it takes to handle those temperatures. Um, you know, our superconductors is, is, is another one. Uh, at super cold temperatures, you can do it. So, you know, eventually they all make it. It's the ideas. And I would say the benchmark for ideas is when you begin spending money on it, I would class it as an idea. And I would say 30% of the time you want that to be commercial, hmm. commercialized. Okay. Wow. That doesn't mean it makes money, um, but it's commercialized, has value, and there is a market for it. Yeah. Um, there may be other issues with it 30% of the time. If you're less than that, um, you're probably uh, not filtering your ideas aggressively enough if you're higher than that you're not reaching far enough interesting 30 percent. okay and uh and, and last question are you guys do you guys out um partner with external companies i know you mentioned you talk to startups sometimes and oh yeah yeah uh, bosch also has a venture capital arm that that okay. helps bring new thought as well um you know i would say that that uh 
Bosch uh, has, and I don't know if it's a German mentality as the ownership of the company or uh, it's the manufacturing uh, bend of Bosch, but they really prefer to develop competence themselves. Hmm. Um, whereas other smaller entities, you know, really don't have the pockets to do that and, and they'll, they'll freely partner. The business units um, are much more assertive at partnering than, than the corporate portion of Bosch. Okay, gotcha. Well, I think that just about does it, uh, unfortunately. Jim, I definitely appreciate your time and sharing all your knowledge and thoughts with us. We're uh, quite lucky to hear and learn from you today. So I appreciate No problem. I, I, I had a good time as well. Great. Well, and I uh, wish you the best of luck at the Bosch and have fun checking out all the new technologies. And I um, appreciate that everyone listening to another episode of Flyer Labs. And I get, we'll see you next time. And uh, once again, thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. Sure, sure. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.